Hello, Claire Twenty here. Just before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that I have written an album of music. It's called Matrescence. It's about motherhood and womanhood and love and desire and overcoming trauma and grief and lots of things in between. And I am launching the album on the 12th of February at 3pm at the Wesleyan in Northgate. Tickets are now on sale, so you can find them in the link in the show notes or in my bio. And I've also released the beautiful album artwork that has been created by my wonderful friend, Annabelle Warren. Now, you can find that artwork over on my Instagram at Claire20 and purchase tickets through Eventbrite. Tickets are $35 and the night will have pub food and drinks at bar prices. There'll be some merch for sale as well and making t-shirts and some tote bags and hopefully some vinyl will be either available as a pre-order or available on the day depending because there is a little bit of a lag time at the moment with vinyl due to COVID. So anyway, I would so love you to be there. Tickets are limited. So if you'd like to come along and hear some music, I would love you to. And after that date, it will all be available for digital streaming downloads and on all your favorite streaming services. So that's all I wanted to say. On with the show. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I create, speak and write today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging that the sovereignty of this land has never been ceded. Hello, this is Tonts, and yes, I have a cold. I'm so sorry. But anyway, hopefully you can cope with my husky voice. I will soldier on. This is a podcast hosted by me, Claire Tonti, where I speak to activists, writers, experts, thinkers and deeply feeling humans about their stories And this week, I have the wonderful Sally Hepworth, one of my favorite writers of all time and just favorite humans. She's just a joy bubble, as I say to her in this interview. She is also the New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, most recently The Younger Wife and her brand new release that I raced raced through, not through, (laughs) raced through, The Soulmate. Her novel, The Mother-in-Law, which she wrote in 2019, has been optioned for a TV series by Hollywood actress and producer Amy Powler, no less. My goodness. Drawing on the good, the bad, and the downright odd of human behavior, Sally writes incisively about family, relationships, and identity. Her domestic thriller novels are laced with quirky humor, sass, and a darkly charming tone. Now, they've been sold around the globe in English and have been translated into 20 languages. She has sold more than 1 million books worldwide, and she now lives in Melbourne with her husband, Christian, and her three children. One of the things I love the most about Sally is her Instagram account, other than obviously her brilliant novels, which are also great. And as I mentioned, The Soulmate is out at the moment, so you can totally go and grab a copy of that. We talk about the content of that book, which is just brilliant today, Marriage and Murder. She wrote it during lockdown, and I think that's really indicative of maybe her mental state, but also all our mental states uh, generally, as in Melbourne, we did live through one of the longest lockdowns in the world. Yeah, it's a great thriller and excellent and also a really deep look at love and marriage too, which is beautiful. But more than that, back to her Instagram account, Sally shares little snippets of her family life with her husband, Christian, who is autistic and neurodiverse, as is she. She has ADHD and it's just a 
joy to behold how funny and quirky and intelligent they are as a couple. And Sally's approach to life in general is so open and warm and funny and honest. And in this interview, I didn't expect to get really emotional, but I do. I've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time. And you'll hear in this interview kind of a realization for me as Sally's talking about a lot of the traits that she has dealt with with her diagnosis and just how familiar they all seem to me. So I want you to know that this isn't an episode where I confirm absolutely that I have ADHD, but just that what Sally said really resonated with me, particularly about neurodivergence and that it's a path that I think I'm going to explore for myself. And I think her advice around self-compassion is just so important and so valuable. And I just, I bloody loved this chat so much. I really found her to be an incredibly warm and wonderful person as I knew she would be. I hope you do too. We have a lot of fun. All right, off we go. Here she is, Sally Hepworth. Okay, oh, look at your nails. I love that colour. <gasps> Thank you. I just got them done this morning. I mean, I do like a, a yellow nail and I've had them in the past, but I just got them redone because they were looking a bit sad. Yeah, no, they're gorgeous. <laughs> I just think, I love your Instagram and your fashion and all of the things that you share all the time. You're just like a big joy bubble. Oh, Have you always been like that? Um, I don't know. I love that a joy bubble. Well, I've always been fairly um, expressive <laughs> of things. I will say that, and I'm a fairly happy person, which is funny since I write, you know, books about murder. But um, yeah, but there you have it. There you have. They're funny as well, though. I think that's like, like I'm a very happy person too. But I love watching BBC crime dramas where women get murdered all the time. I don't know. Maybe it's because you're externally happy, so you need like a contrast. I don't know. You know, I yeah. Christian calls them my my nasty shows. (laughs) I, I, I sit in the bedroom and he comes in and someone's, you know, some, something really rapey or murdery that I'm watching and he's like, what is wrong with you? And I, I, I have to feel, you know, I need something terrible to happen so I can feel. <laughs> yes, that is exactly it. It's the extremes that I love. I don't like any of this like middle of the road, I'm fine business. I'm either like incredibly ex- like ecstatic or like awfully depressed and miserable you know, Same. don't want to be middle of the road. All right. So I wanted to ask you about how you became a writer because I just, I love this story. How did you become a writer? Where did it all begin? Well, I mean, it depends how far you want to go back. I did quite famously or infamously in my family write my first book when I was seven years old. And that book was a, a book of short stories. And I think I had the idea to write the book and then that sounded really exciting and glamorous. So then I took to, you know, the dining room table and wrote these short stories. And then I took it to my aunt, who was a a publisher at the time of school textbooks. So not the kind of, not not seven-year-olds books of short stories, but (laughs) I said, you're going to need to publish this. And I remember she put it in between two, you know, like a manila kind of files and put those three gold like press stud things with the two prongs to put it all together and she wrote copyright Sally Caradus which was my maid my maiden name in 1987 so that was I don't know maybe written in the stars but it it took me another 20 years before I wrote my next book (laughs) after mustard and ink Uh, (laughs) and that was when I was living over in Canada 
and pregnant with my first child and about to go on maternity leave. And I suppose, I mean, I've always been an avid reader, a voracious reader, you know, with several books going at a time. And I don't know if I had kind of properly had the thought I would like to write a novel because I never thought of it as something that you could do. Like it, it was a, it was so fanciful. It wasn't like becoming a dentist or a nurse or a teacher or a lawyer where you went to university and, and then you were employed. It felt a bit different. But I think it was the fact that I was taking a year off work, what, what I was doing for a job then, and I thought like a stupid first-time mother, that I was going to have all this free time. Um, I remember thinking I'd write a master's. I said that to my friend. What? I barely could have a shower. I know. And and I I say now, because sometimes I tell my story and and new mothers kind of say, how did you do that? How did, because I did end up, I I wrote a book that year, worst book in the world. Um, But the reason I was able to do it is that I had a robot baby and my, my robot baby is now 13 and he is still a man who likes a schedule and he used to nap, you know, for three hours, you know, at the same time of day and, and he was very reliable. With my next two children, my daughters, no way could I have written a shopping list. So that I spent that year writing um, my first novel, worst book ever. I wrote another novel. The following year while working part-time and then I wrote a third novel when I was pregnant with my daughter and that was the book that allowed me to become a full-time writer although in a funny twist of fate that first book that I wrote worst book in the world is that the one about midwives the secrets of midwives no that was the first one that was published so that was book three that was yes. published in English and all around the world which yeah. was amazing that first book, which was called Love Like the French, that I wrote that first year on maternity leave, ended up being published in the German language only in a kind of retroactive deal. And thank goodness, because I don't want anyone to read it. And if anyone's listening and they can speak German, don't buy it. <laughs> what's it about? Oh my, what's it about? <laughs> it's about a woman who, she's a British woman who goes and she's sort of the uptight stiff upper lip kind of classic Brit my husband's British and she goes to spend a summer in the south of France to kind of learn to you know live like a French person and like you know the juxtaposition of the two but that makes it sound better than it is it's really you know what it was it was an exploration of what it's like to write for me you know I just wanted to see if I could create characters and create you know scenes and and I fell in love with the process through that book so I have good feelings about it, but I don't think first books are meant to be read, do you? <laughs> no. Oh. No, well, definitely not my, like, poetry. I used to write a lot of poetry. And those are very happy <laughs> to stay right, deeply hidden. There's a lot of anguish, <laughs> so much anguish and metaphors, but, you know, it's fine. I wanted to ask you how you actually did that. So did you, because presumably, is that before Google? Or you could just Google, how do you write a book and start? Like, because... Yeah. People listening will think, okay, come on, Sally, t- don't tell me you didn't know anything about it and you just wrote a whole novel. Yeah, no, it was not before Google or it, it would not have happened. I, I Googled how to write a novel and uh, that was I'd made the decision to stay 
at home. I think I was either just about to have my baby, I think, and I I Googled how to write a book. And Google was amazing. Google has got all the answers always. And it provided, I imagine, several ways that you could do it. And I chose one. It was called the snowflake method. And I've never used it since then. And I can't really remember how it works. But what was so great about it is that it gave me a way to do something that felt really intangible. And it started with something like, write your whole book in a sentence. Like, what is, you know, what's the gist? (laughs) You know, what's your kind of high level? And then you turn it into a paragraph and then you break it down into scenes. And I think that it wasn't particularly about that method. It was about there was a way into it for me who didn't know anything about it. And yeah, but ever since then, I have written books different ways every time. But there's something about the confidence of having finished one that, that gets you through it. But yeah, Google. And, and again, I finished writing that novel and I Googled how to get a book published. And every step in between, how to edit a book, you know, how to get an agent, it's all on Google. And, and when people slide into my inbox to ask to pick my brain or for tips or, you know, they say it's so confusing, it's so hidden and shrouded in mystery, this publishing industry, I always say, no, no, it's not. (laughs) Just Google it. It's all there. (laughs) (laughs) And what's your best sort of tip then for emerging writers or a woman who's on maternity leave with a robot baby who's like, great, I've got three hours a day. I don't want to do the washing. I'm going to start. What's your best tips? It's, It's really just to do the writing and and it may be that if you're like me you need to find a snowflake method or a something that gives you the confidence to go in I'd probably recommend if you do need something buy a book there's some fantastic books about how to write a novel there's one called The Plot Whisperer by Martha Alderson there's one called Writing the Breakout Novel if you need that some people that would be the worst thing for them but if you're looking for something to give you a bit of you know, scaffolding as you prepare to write, get one book or Google one method because you can just get lost in it. And then just sit down and write and know that that first book might not get published, probably shouldn't get published. And and just do it for you. Get to develop your voice, get to develop what kind of stories that you love telling and think about is this a book that do I want to become a novelist or is there just this one story that I want to tell? You know, all of these questions that you're going to have to face at some point, I think are are good things to to think about starting off because it's going to help guide every step you take from there. Do you suffer from inner critic? Yes. Yeah, of course. And, And I think it's both a good thing and a bad thing because being critical of oneself is what allows us to write a book and go through all of the, you know, many, many process, um, you know, rounds of edits, the many, many drafts. Anyone who does anything worthwhile has to be able to look at what they do critically. So that's where it's good. Where it's bad is when it stops you from doing something. And I hear that it's just so common with writers that they write their first book and it doesn't get published. And so that's it. You know, they can't, they stop writing or they get a book published, but it doesn't sell to their expectations. And, and, you know, then that's it. And I think what really gets you through is, is tenacity, you know, just to be able to keep going. And, and, and I really think that 
people kind of attribute success to talent and that people try and click social media or you know whatever they can find and really what it is about is just tenacity and not giving up and in the face of each setback just to keep on going and uh you know if you've been bitten by the the writing you know bug as it were you can't help it because you think I I can't do anything else I have to write and that's always helpful to keep you on the road can you tell us a story of a big failure that you've had where you've it's all fallen apart I'm assuming maybe it hasn't it's all gone perfectly can you tell us a story about a big failure and how you did push through that with some tenacity? I can indeed. I could I could tell you a few, but I'll I'll tell you the most entertaining one. Love it. <laughs> uh, this is a great example, actually. I had just released The Mother-in-Law, which was my most successful book up until that point. And it was a really exciting time from the the outside looking in. You know, I'd been over to the States to go on Good Morning America and that book was optioned by Amy Poehler. So it was all really exciting. And at the same time, I was working on the next book and you're always a little bit ahead. So at that time when all the good things were happening with the mother-in-law, I was well into the book for the next year. And that book was about three couples that meet at a swingers party. (laughs) I love it. I know everyone. It's it's such a good premise, but I really fucked it up. Am I like swear? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. And, you know, still when I say the premise, people go, oh, yes, you know, oh, that sounds good. And so when I decided to write it, I really, you know, put my back into it, I was going to say. I <laughs> went and did some real hardcore research. Yeah. I, I, well, I did. I, I went and um, I went and found a swingers party to go to because I think that, when you've brought out a few books, you're really aware that this part of it happens, you know, when people are asking you about, you know, the book and it's out. And I just pictured all these people saying to me, Sally, you know, how did you research the swingers book? And I thought, well, I have to tell them that I went to a party. You know, I'm not just a keyboard researcher. (laughs) You're really committed to this book venture. I sure am. So (laughs) this is part of the tenacity thing, right? (laughs) And uh, so I found a party, a swingers party. It was quite a a kind of upmarket. It was run by a woman who actually went to school with Kate Middleton and she started running these exclusive parties at country homes around England that were very eyes wide shut and they became so popular that they then moved around the world and there was one coming to Sydney I live in Melbourne, but I thought that's actually quite good because then I'm not going to bump into, you know, my kid's kindergarten teacher or anything. And (laughs) so I booked us in, Christian as well. I remember we were on the couch watching The Voice like on a Wednesday night in our tracksuits, you know, the least glamorous people alive. And I said, I have to book us into this party. And Christian is an accountant in every sense of the word. He's now our our full-time parent at home but I remember him just looking over at me and I said it's for research you have to come be fine and he he said okay all right great so I booked us in we had to submit photos you had to be under 40 which we would not make it now but we just sort of sneaked in and it was quite expensive so we booked into the party fast forward you know a few weeks and we showed up now the hosts knew that we were not 
going to take part. It was a really big party. There was 100 people there. She said, this is a good one to go to because it won't be obvious if you're not uh, getting involved. There's lots of first timers and, and new people. So we went along. <laughs> and, oh, my God. It was the wildest night. I've never got so used to people just having sex all around me. Like I remember oh, there were orgies going on. The people were beautiful. I mean, they were really attractive young people, but there was just sex going on everywhere. And I remember looking over at Christian who was at the bar because we paid a lot of money for these tickets and, you know, he wasn't going to be having any sex. So he stood at the bar just drinking because the alcohol was included and he wanted to get his money's worth. <laughs> and I, this man walked out of the bedroom next to him and he had no pants on, but he was wearing a long kind of shirt. And I was looking at the man and I thought, I wonder if he's got any undies on. And as I had that thought, he turned to the side and his giant boner hit Christian in the leg. <laughs> anyway, just to bring this all home, for those of you at home that are thinking, she just asked about when um, things really went wrong for you. So that was what I did in the name of this book. And also, we, you know, Christian and I both traumatised spent a lot of money on going to this party. I then wrote a book about a swingers party and my publisher said she didn't want to publish it. And I remember, and I'd spent a year writing it, I'd gone to the party, I'd done the whole thing, and I remember saying to, to Christian, you know, they're not going to publish the swingers book. And he looked at me and he said, does this mean that we can't claim the swingers party as a, as a tax deduction? <laughs> I got hit by a boner for no reason. I know, I know. Boner, that's fine. But can we claim it on our tax? Oh, my God. So, you know, and, and, and that, was, that was a huge setback and that was after I had ostensibly, you know, had some success in my career mm. and, in fact, it was on the heels of my biggest success. I then basically wasn't paid for a whole year because that book wasn't published. I was the primary breadwinner at that point in our lives and you know now I'm the sole breadwinner but that that was a scary thing both financially as well as creatively and yeah. when you put those two things together it can be you know a real nightmare and it took me well a whole book The Good Sister was my next book which again thankfully was um, successful but that book came with a lot of hand-holding from my publishers assuring me that I could do it again and I think I've probably only just regained that confidence that I lost while also knowing that it will probably happen again. You know, if you continue to write stories and put yourself out there, we know that probably success will come and we also know that that failure will come and, and that's just part of it. And you'll get hit by a boner for no reason. And boners. Yep. <laughs> Smack you around. Oh, God. I just... One of the things that makes me laugh so much about that particular story is that I know Christian through your Instagram account, which sounds kind of creepy, but I just, no. he makes me like, I cannot explain how funny that guy is. And I would he's so, hilarious. he's so hilarious. Would you like to tell us the story of how you met? 
Yes, we we. Uh, I'm glad that that you find him funny. Everyone seems to like Christian, and I'm I'm glad he's very amusing to to all of us here. We met through a mutual friend who, in fact, a girl that I worked with met Christian. They were having breakfast next to each other at a cafe, and she asked to borrow a section of his newspaper. And she said to me when she told me later that she quite fancied him. And then he stood up and he wasn't tall enough because she was really tall and she needed a really tall man. And so she came to work the following Monday and said, I've got a man for you because <laughs> I'm quite short. You're really going to like him. And as it turned out, I did really like him. And he had a party at his house a week or so later. I came and and it was really, you know, there was chemistry straight away and, and we got together quite quickly and we moved to Canada together about six months later and came back married with a baby. So it was just one of those those things. I think I was equally attracted to how funny he was. So we've had lots of laughs since then. Yeah. Oh, he's so funny. My goodness. I love that article you wrote about him and how he now supports you in the work that you do. Do you want to tell us how that works now? Because obviously he was an accountant. How yep. is it that he contributes to your success and your career? Yeah, well, he's he's like he's the stay-at-home dad, so he's like the reverse kind of situation that you see more often. Um, he does all of the things that 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 I used to do when I was at home. He does the the laundry and he picks up the kids and manages that side of things. He also, as you mentioned, is an accountant, and so now that we have the the Sally Hepworth enterprises business he takes care of all of that which is a huge relief all of the tax stuff and all of the financial things so he's kind of ceo of the home slash you know cfo of sally hepworth but look i I think it's it's interesting i i saw jane harper speak last week and she was asked about her work-life balance and wasn't it interesting that her husband was the stay-at-home parent and uh Leanne Moriarty is another Australian author that her husband is the stay-at-home parent and I think it's great I love talking about it because I think it should be normalized and I think that uh it shouldn't be that interesting at the same time I kind of think it it shouldn't be as noteworthy as it is you know that I don't think that he would be asked about it if he was enjoying a successful career and was being interviewed, I don't think that he would be asked, you know, tell us about the dynamic of your wife being at home, you know, like when, <laughs> totally. when you hear it like that, it just sounds like madness, doesn't it? And, and so I'm kind of on the fence of, I love, I'm proud of the fact that I'm the, the breadwinner and, you know, he's an amazing support to me, but it shouldn't be a focus of, you know, it shouldn't be as interesting as it is. And I hope that, you know, the more people that that have this circumstance will lead other men to, to taking on that role because Christian's much better at it than I ever was. Mm. Yeah, my husband's much better at parenting than me all the yeah. time. My brain's like zipping around all the time. And so he's like much steadier in general and better with routine. I really hate routine yeah. and he's like... Same. 
clockwork and kids really love that and yeah. so yeah I, I I love that idea that you're a team and that you play to your strengths and you just make it work and it doesn't have to be this sort of traditional way of doing things I would be miserable if I was if I was at home with the kids full-time and some people love that and it's their favorite thing and you just you know it's about trying to make it work for you and whatever that looks like. And so thank you for talking about it because I know it's annoying <laughs> to have to, but also I agree with you, it normalises it. And it just gives people options to think, ah, oh, life could look that way or this way. Yeah. You know? And it's not annoying. It's what it is, is it's just about, I'm happy to talk about it, but I always feel like it's it needs to be pointed out that it's not a question that men are asked. And I think the more times we say that, the more people will recalibrate about the questions that we ask, you know? Totally. Here's a question. Why didn't they publish the Swingers book? What was it about (laughs) it that they were like, no, Sally, I thank you. I know. Good question. Um, Look, I think when people are being kind, they say things like, oh, it was probably too risque, you know, maybe the world wasn't ready for it. And I can go along with that. But I think in my heart of hearts, I don't think it was good enough. I I think that I had an idea of what it could be and I don't think I pulled it off. And I may have kept going at it and tried to get it right if my publisher had been really supportive and had seen where I was trying to go. But my publisher after my second go at it, said, I think maybe we should put this to the side. And so I did leave it. But look, I think if I'm being honest, I just didn't do a very good job of it. Um, I've since seen books come out about swingers parties. There was one recently uh, and it did really well. So, and it was an American book because um, some people said, oh, it's the American audience that wouldn't like it. But I just think I didn't do a good job of it. So interesting because then you said you wrote The Good Sister, which I loved, and Rose and Fern, oh, that just the whole story. Where did that come from? Where did that story? Yeah, so I can't completely remember the moment that it happened. I know that there was a lot of difficulty getting me to that point ready to write another book because I was really floored by the the, the last book not getting published. I found that really difficult. Um, but when it came around to write, there's another book to write and I didn't have much time to waste because I, you know, I'd lost a year of salary. I needed to get writing. And I remember the character of Fern, who is the the protagonist, I guess, of, of The Good Sister. She came to me quite strongly. And at that time I was writing books in the library. I would go to the Brighton Library with my computer each day and I would sit there and write my books. And so the idea of a book set in a library or, you know, with a librarian as a character was really interesting to me. When Fern came to me, she came very clearly as being autistic. And that was something that I had to think about because my son and daughter are autistic and I've spent a lot of time in the world, as it were. I also have got a great respect for the idea of leaving space for everyone to be able to tell their own stories. So it's a little bit of a murky kind of field. I'm, I have ADHD, so I am neurodiverse, but I'm not autistic. And so I had to sit with that for a bit, but I decided to go ahead with it for two reasons. One is that I really wanted to, uh, you have to think about what am I going to add? You know, if I'm going to step into this field, what am I going to add that I haven't seen before? And 
I realized what I really did want to add was talking about sensory processing disorder, which is a really common comorbidity of autism that affects my son particularly, but also my daughter. And I think that the more people understand that, not that it is fiction and it's, it's out there to entertain, but I loved the idea of, um, of including that in a book. The other thing I wanted to do was to write a story not necessarily about autism, but with a autistic protagonist just living an ordinary life. You know, she's not in the book to make a point about autism or to discover that she's autistic or for her family to become aware of that. She's actually in the book because she's a woman, she's facing challenges that have nothing to do with her being autistic. And that is the kind of representation that I want to see in books, you know, that people are just in them because they exist. So I had my character, I had my setting of the library. I've got two daughters, which is an interesting relationship because I have no sisters. And watching them and their little dynamic that they have with each other really sparked an interest in sisters and from there the character of Rose was born and and all of the interesting dynamics between them were just about me figuring out their story. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. Do you feel like because this storyline was grounded more in your lived experience that it made more sense to you and you were able to write it in a better way than, the, say, the swing, Swingers book? Maybe. I don't know. Certainly the character of Fern came really easily. I don't know. And and I have had to kind of ask myself, well, you know, what have I learned? I don't know. I think what I've learned is just that some books work and some books don't. It could be. It could be because I was confident in the world of, of writing a character like Fern, whereas I'm not particularly, even with my trip to the swingers party, I'm, I'm not as confident with that. You know, and I've heard so many authors who've had quite a few books under their belt talk about the books that they tried to write and didn't work and they don't know why. And I think sometimes it's just part of it. I mean, maybe in a sense, just failing at something is really important in a, you know, in a journey towards success, hopefully, because of what you learn from that. I don't know. I wanted to ask you about your story with ADHD um, because you mentioned that before. When did you get diagnosed? So I was diagnosed in 2020, yeah, 2020 during the lockdown. And it was after my daughter Eloise had been diagnosed with ADHD. Later, my son was also diagnosed. But I remember hearing that, that she had it. And I was surprised because she, while she had had some difficulty in, in various areas at school, she didn't have what I thought of as ADHD. I, I always thought of it as being a naughty, fidgety, you know, little boy. That loud boy. Yeah, the loud boy in class that mucks around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas she was really much more of a dreamer and she was quite creative and really quirky and, and wonderful, but, but she was a real dreamer. and. Her teachers kept saying to us, oh, you know, maybe we should look into something. And I was that dreadful parent going, nah, she's fine. No. (laughs) And I remember one day she said to me, because she'd just been told she wasn't concentrating in class, and but she looked like she was concentrating. So I said to her, what are you doing when it looks like you're concentrating? And she said, well, what I do if something's really boring is I look at the teacher so she thinks I'm listening 
and then I make up a story in my head. And in the story, I'm the hero and I usually will, uh, the school might be on fire and then I rescue someone from a burning building and I come out and everyone claps. And, And I thought, well, I mean, isn't that what everyone does when the teachers are saying something boring? You make up stories in your head. And it was that moment that I thought, wow. So she was diagnosed shortly after that. And I told the pediatrician that story. And he said, that's classic inattentive ADHD. And it's something that we see a lot of in girls rather than than in the presentation that boys more often have. And I said, well, I think I might have it too. And he said, well, maybe you do. And I went away and researched ADHD and girls or, and women. And sure enough, I went down that process of, of getting diagnosed and my psychiatrist said, you're a classic case. He said, writers, musicians, artists and actors uh, make up the, the vast majority of his clients because there is that kind of correlation between that creative world that people with ADHD sink into and and the way that it helps to to create different sorts of art so yeah it it was great to get a diagnosis it helped me understand myself much better Um, I think it helped my family to understand me better I sort of stopped short of calling it a superpower because I think that can not adequately help convey the challenges of it because I do find a lot of challenges because of my ADHD, but we all have challenges, you know, and and I wouldn't, you know, we're all the kind of product of the challenges we face. So how does it present for you? So when you say there's great things and then challenges, what are those for you? Because I know it's different for different neurodivergent people. It's not like exactly what you were saying with your character, Fern, autism yeah. looks like X, you know, we're all unique snowflakes, for want of a better word. Yeah. Well, how does it look? What does it look like for you? So one of the main things is, uh, I call it confusion, but it's time time blindness is is one thing that they is, is a sort of technical term. For example, the moment it's a really busy time because I've got a book coming out and there have been various schedules of places I'm meant to be and things that I've got on, and I will find out that I have to be going to Sydney tomorrow, and it has been in my diary for three weeks and I've looked at it, but then when I get up in the morning, I'll be surprised, <laughs> you know, and and Christian, Christian helps me with that and he'll set alarms and do all the things. So many things are a surprise to me when I look at my diary each day. <laughs> um, things like my, my editor always used to laugh that every year I would get my copy edits and I would have to, he'd have to explain how, I have to do them. And he'd think I was joking and I'm like, I cannot remember ever doing this before. How does this work? I used to, when I was the full-time parent, I used to forget to pick up my kids. It was a joke. Everyone thought it was funny. I had friends that would wait around to make sure that I came to pick them up. Um, and if I didn't, she would take them. And it's funny, but it's also kind of, you know, it, and I felt Gosh. really, I felt really ashamed of that a lot of times. I find like, Again, it makes so much sense. My friends all say that they know that if there's a, a dinner, a girls' dinner, they'll never ask me to bring anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I never offer, you know, they're, and they're all bringing salads and, you know, occasionally like I can bring wine or like ice cream so I don't have to, but making a salad, I, I can't do that. That's just too many steps. 
Um, I don't cook at all because I can either go to the grocery store or the supermarket or I can cook, but just having to do all of that, no, too much. And so all of those things, while it's kind of funny and now I just don't do it because I have Christian that does it, for my most of my life, I saw people doing these really simple tasks like bringing a salad and, you know, and stacking their dishwasher and while cleaning their kitchen. And I thought, how are you doing that? And and people would say to me, how do you write a book a year? Like, this is amazing. And I would be all, but you are bringing a salad, you know, like that. Like, let's just talk about that. Um, because salad, like all that stuff you've got to get and how do you keep it fresh and what about the dressing? So, um, and then salad servers. So it, for me, it is just that minutia of life. I can do big things, but I can't do small things. It's the, it's the hard things versus, yeah, that are easy. Yeah. <laughs> and the easy things that are hard. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing you talk, Sally, because I, so much of what you're saying resonates with me. And I've been really resonant. I haven't said this actually on anything that I've, I make or do because I don't feel qualified. Like I, I haven't been to see anyone about it, mentioned it to a GP, but I, so much of what you say makes so much sense to me. Really? Mm, hugely. I've thought about it for a long time about going to see someone, but I felt like the diagnosis path is complicated. And if you have this kind of timeliness thing, it's even more freaking complicated because I find appointments I, like impossible to yeah. turn up for and a oh, surprise yeah. a, yeah. a, a surprise even this interview to me I had three reminders in my phone and Same. I got Claire to check in and it was still a surprise to me when I woke up in the morning and my phone went off I was like oh that's right even though I'd spent last night researching the interview and I'd read the book and I, I'm like so excited about it still a surprise oh still my god surprise. you've definitely got it I and and you know the good news is that, so so there is bad news of it right like it, that that's hard and you do feel ashamed and you do kind of internalize this idea that you're not trying hard enough and and that I I used to be told oh near enough's good enough for you Sally you know you've no attention to detail that stuff I think we have absorbed the when people are being kinder you're scatty and you know, it's funny, but mm. you also, it's hard to take yourself seriously. Um, the the plus side, I guess, is that if you can get to the diagnosis point, and by the way, <laughs> I've had a long conversation with the receptionist at my psychiatrist who also has ADHD, <laughs> and she said, you will not believe, like trying to get people to show up to their appointments <laughs> and like fill out the forms. She said it's like a comedy show. Um and and so there's there's getting to that point and then there's the financial commitment because it's a thing of privilege to be able to afford to get a diagnosis as well and ADHD is a black hole when it comes to NDIS funding at the moment that may change um but even the understanding of this is what is happening when I can't you know get somewhere on time or when I get confused it's been such a kind of at the risk of sounding a bit airy-fairy, it's been healing for me just knowing that it's not that I don't care enough and it's not that I don't contribute. I, I want to contribute when I go to my friend's, you know, home for dinner, but I, I can't bring a salad and the people who love me are like, Sal doesn't bring salad, that's fine. You you know, you contribute in other ways. And and that will be true of you and, and all of us, that 
we can't do everything, but we contribute in other ways. God, I didn't expect to get emotional. This is really unprofessional. <laughs> I want to give you a hug. <laughs> I just, I think I, I wanted to ask you about that shame thing because yeah. particularly for my brain, I care about everything in an excruciating amount of detail. Yeah. But I will still forget birthdays. I will still turn up late. I will still think that I have booked in tickets with a good friend to go to something that she's wanted to go to for ages and it ended up being the same weekend as my friend's 40th, which I'm taking the kids to and I just can't go. And then I'm calling her at like two hours before or just someone turns up at a thing. One time I booked tickets to a theatre show and I had dental surgery the same day and I felt so bad. So I just turned up with a face full of dental stuff and sat in the audience to watch the show. My friend was like, are you okay? And I was high on painkillers. I didn't want to not turn up because that's like this classic Claire scatty brain, right? That you then feel like people think you're not very clever. Yeah. Or that you don't care and that you, you didn't want to go to that thing with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then what I find also so interesting is when you feel like you're a clever person, but you can't be consistent enough to actually deliver and then people ask you things and I'll go into my brain for the name of something that I've studied at university and they'll just be like tumbleweeds. Yeah. Just like a woman in there running around through files and nothing going on. And I think, but I studied this. I should know this. How do you, you know, so what do you do to combat all of that now, now that you have that diagnosis? Do you have strategies? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that, that strategies exist. And one of the things my psychiatrist said to me is that you can take medication and I do take medication. And I also have, I see a psychologist and he said, this will not make you a different person, which in one way is very comforting because you, I don't want to become a different person. There are lots of things about me that I love. And as a mother of two kids with ADHD, I didn't want them turning into zombies, you know, that old like kind of fear that is planted in in you as a parent. You don't want your kids or yourself to be zombies. He said that is not going to happen and that we won't tolerate that. If you take medication and it turns you into a zombie, if it dulls your creativity, if it gets rid of your joie de vivre, you know, no, that means it's the wrong dose or maybe you don't respond to that medication. Now, I, yeah, so... I've forgotten what you said now. Where was I going with that? <laughs> we were talking about strategies. Strategies, yes. Help. So yeah. <laughs> me- medication is a strategy and that is incredibly helpful for keeping me at the task. You know, if I have got a day of writing to do, I get so much more done if I take a stimulant and I don't take them if I don't need to. The other things that are helpful, and this is, due to my, you know, my own personal circumstance is that I have been able to hire an assistant who does a lot of the stuff that I forget and who knows that every morning she needs to go, hey, remember this? Like she'll actually text me the things if they're important. Um, so that's helpful. And there are a number of things you can put in place and there are a million videos like on YouTube about leaving stuff out that you need to remember. And I do do that a little bit. So it's right in front of you. But in general, I still forget stuff. I'm still late. I'm still confused. Um, But I am much more forgiving of myself and I'm much more kind of ready to 
apologise, you know, I'll get there. I'm not as sort of mortified. If I show up 10 minutes late to a podcast, for example, and I'll say, I am so sorry, I forgot. And I might say I've got ADHD or I might not mention that. But I don't take it on as this great failing of my character because I know why. And it doesn't mean that I don't respect people's time, but it also isn't the end of the world. You know, people forget stuff. So I do think it's worth getting a diagnosis if you, you know, if you can get there. Yeah, I, I think there's lots of things in the universe that, is, that have been telling me I, I need to go and actually go down that rabbit hole. So thank you so much. That's been so valuable. I think that message of self-acceptance and self-compassion and kindness is just everything really Mm. for everyone, not just for Mm. people with ADHD, but especially in that trajectory of when you feel like you failed a lot, when you're trying so hard. Yes. I didn't realise I thought that everyone just tried that hard and sometimes were late, but for some people just turn up a bit late and it's no big deal, but I've been trying and yeah. somehow I'm still blow drying my hair five minutes before I need to be there. Uh, anyway, I wanted to ask you <laughs> now about the soulmate and actually I'll kind of cross this over with hyperfocus mm. because that's a skill in ADHD that we've sort of heard around a lot. Do you use hyperfocus to write your books? I mean, I do definitely and I had that before even taking medication it's a really common thing hyperfocus that people don't understand about ADHD they think that ADHD means you're scatty and can't concentrate but equally you know it it can make you concentrate really well the problem with hyperfocus is that you need to be hyperfocused on the right thing (laughs) and (laughs) Christian always says that he can tell that I'm spiraling when and and it could be many things but lately and I don't know if you're across I lost my a lot of my hair earlier this Mm. year and I've started to get wigs and I now have so many wigs they're all over everywhere and when I go into a hyper focus of the wrong direction he will find me in the bathroom washing my wigs Because you get toppers as well, don't you? And yeah. they look amazing. I know because there were articles online about it. You, I've seen you on like a breakfast show, I think, talking about it. I'm, I I'm now a wingfluencer. But so it's yes. all very well and good if I'm hyper-focused on writing my book. But equally and often when I am under deadline and it's actually really important that I'm doing something else, I'll decide to become hyper-focused on washing my wigs. And, you know, it's... It's funny, but it's also not very good, is it? Um, and and it's been happening all my life. I remember speaking to my publisher years ago when my edits were due and I hadn't sent them in and, and he rang and he said, is everything okay? And I said, I'm just painting some furniture. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm done, I will get to the edits. <laughs> Oh my god! I yeah, I remember last year. I think I, I had like all these podcast editing due, and instead I made a video online of me putting netting over my vegetable garden because I was really intent on this possum that I was having a fight with. He kept eating my seedlings, and then I just spent yeah. so long buying all this equipment and researching all this <laughs> stuff, and then literally was all due. So I had to stay up all night to finish this stupid podcast because I'd spent all day gardening. Anyway. Is it, it is, right? Is that partly the adrenaline? Do you sometimes need the adrenaline to get you to focus? I don't know because it's not that I'm not that classic kind of there's a great TED talk about the procrastination monkey and the 
the panic monster and, you know, how you can procrastinate and procrastinate and you, you can't work any harder until, you know, the panic monster comes out when you've got 12 hours to go and then. Yes. Um, and, and that can apply to people with or without ADHD. And I actually think that I am not so much that way. The, the panic monster, I think, makes me unable to work. Like I'll just spiral and just go into a, I prefer to have time. I think it's more for me, it's just a misdirection of my energy. And once I get focused on something, I can't get off. So I know that I need to be doing my work, but I've decided I need to wash all my wigs and I just, I can't stop. And, you know, it is a bit of a, maybe a compulsive thing too, because I also pull my hair out, which is a compulsive um, OCD type. Well, it falls under the category of OCD. And so I think it is kind of some of my misdirections are almost compulsive so yeah but a lot of people do get that panic monster adrenaline rush that they need to finish something for me I just need to have a good amount of time and not be misdirected by anything <laughs> and I'll just get in a it room done. with bare walls with no yeah. wigs a, just a no cell choice. yeah yeah no just exactly locked in a cell with no wigs like that, sounds like Sally Hepworth's hell without her without her wigs to look at. It they does. are beautiful wigs. I know. Did this, this is one? I really. Oh love my gosh! This one. Yeah, it's lovely. You've really made it trendy. I feel like it's like you know the next thing everyone's getting. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the interview, and I wanted to talk to you about the soulmate because. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I also love the younger sister as well. I just love the way you write women in particular and the relationships between them. I find them, the characters so well-rounded and relatable and I immediately go, oh, that's like that person in my life and I just adore your writing in general. The soulmate I raced through because it's very, it's like a a sort of a thriller. I'm not really, it's just a page turner. Um, Did you write it during lockdown? I did. Yes. I wrote two books during lockdown. I wrote The Younger Wife and and also The Soulmate. The Soulmate. <laughs> to think, what is it called? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it was actually, of all the books I've written, it was one of the easiest, I say, you know, no books are easy, but I got into the flow of it and it really came out the way that I kind of wanted it to. And as I said before, you know, each book is a new beast and some of them never come together. But this one, yeah, I don't know if it was because we were in lockdown, in spite of the fact that we were in lockdown. But yeah, it, it certainly the lockdown inspired the the topic, which which was of marriage and murder. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you talk about that. And I thought that is so perfect. Yeah, it just I, like sounds like a real outlet for all these people stuck in their ha- homes with their husbands. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone after that lockdown in Melbourne, everyone wanted to read a book about marriage and murder. So, uh, yeah, it was it was good fun to write it. Yeah. Gabe is a really interesting character. Do you want to tell us about him and the way that you wrote him? Yeah, well, I'll tell you quickly about the premise. So, so the book is about, as I said, marriage and specifically two marriages. One is the marriage of Gabe and Pip who live in this beautiful cliffside cottage. Um, it's quite picturesque and, and lovely. And thing that they don't know until they move in is that the cliff on which their house is perched is very popular among people going to end their lives. And that's obviously very terrible, but a little silver lining is that Gabe has sort of 
found redemption in a way because he they have moved away from Melbourne in order to start this this sea change of a life. Um, and he's found redemption by talking the people down from the cliff. Uh, and in the year that they've lived there, seven people have come to the cliff and all seven have walked away because of Gabe until one person doesn't walk away. And that happens in the first chapter. A woman comes to the cliff and unfortunately she goes over the cliff. And so the two marriages are Gabe and Pip who live in the cliff, cliff house and then Amanda who is the woman who's gone over the cliff and some of her story is told posthumously and her husband Max. And we kind of follow these two marriages and look at how they started and how they evolved and ultimately how they intertwine. Um, so that's the book. And Gabe, um, as you mentioned, is a, a really interesting character to follow. He's very charismatic. He's very handsome. He's got that magic kind of quality to him. And he also, unfortunately, with mental illness, he has a, a lot, he's very troubled and he has, you know, really gone through some difficulties in his life and being able to manage his mental illness. And his wife, Pip, has also had to manage that. And yeah, he was a, he was a fascinating character to write. I was able to lean on, which I always do in my books, I try to write about mental illness or, or conditions that affect people in my world. And I was able to really lean on the story of, of someone close to me to to create him. Wow. I think that must be why um, he resonates when you read the story. And I think also the relationship between him and Pip, you see, I've seen that. I've seen mm. that happen and play out in that kind of intense love but then also the complexity of a person who can be at once sparkly and amazing and then the dark side of that and whether you think that person should stay in the relationship or not and the complexity of once you throw kids in the mix and, and yeah. all of those things. What did you want to say about love and marriage with this book? That is a great question. That was certainly what I wanted to explore and, and the idea of a soulmate because we see two very different marriages. We see the shiny, magic chemistry in that relationship with Gabe and Pip, and we also see the very troubled side. And then we have a very different marriage with with Max and Amanda that started without any of the, the chemistry. In fact, it was more of an arrangement type of marriage. And then their marriage progressed. And I don't want to give too much away, but I really wanted to juxtapose the two relationships against each other, not so much to make a point about what a soulmate is, but to make everyone think about what it is. Is there such a thing as a soulmate? How important is chemistry? How important is friendship? Is there one thing that works for everyone or is it different for every person? And uh, if I've got people asking themselves that, then I think I've done my job. Mm, I think you absolutely have done your job. And I won't give too much away, but I, even the trajectory of Amanda, I know she's talking to us from the grave in a lot mm. of the, the book, but the idea that she's so practical in her choice of Max, but over time falls in love with him after being married to him, I find so fascinating. Yeah. And that idea of being with someone for so long that they become so much a part of you and your life that you fall in love in a different way 
It made me reflect about that too, right? That you can have that fiery chemistry at the beginning. Like my partner and I got married when we got married, but got together when I was 19 and how over the course of a marriage, you'll become different people. Yeah. And if you stick with it and you see that kind of evolve, it's a really beautiful thing to explore. Yeah. Yeah. And and for some people, you know, chemistry is different. Like my mum famously said at her 70th birthday, she did a little, and she's not very sentimental, my mum, but she did a little snippet of her speech for my dad and she said, um, Trevor, it's been a lovely life. The other day I was sitting inside and I looked out the window and you were mowing the lawn and you waved at me and I waved back and I thought, I'm happy that I get to wave to him out the window and I hope I can still do it for a few more years to come. <laughs> and and at the time I thought that's a weird thing to say. But the but the the older I get, the more romantic I think that is. And and you know, over the course of your life, I really hope that I'm waving to Christian when I'm 70 and he's outside mowing the lawn. I think that's actually one of the most romantic things I can imagine. So. I think so too, checking the pool for depth or whatever yeah, he was yeah. doing, watching the pool cleaner go on your Instagram. Yeah. If, if, if anyone's listening to this and is curious oh. about Christian, go and follow Sally on Instagram. That made me laugh so much because the passion that he yeah. clearly has for science and how things work is yep. just glorious to behold. And a reminder of how wonderful it is for us to be unique and fully ourselves. Yes. You know? Exactly. I think that's the gift of neurodivergence as well, right? It really is. And, and and celebrating everyone for who they are, but also bringing that kind of celebration back to yourself as well and, and forgiveness back to yourself because, you know, if we love people that are neurodiverse and different and wonderful, then, you know, why shouldn't we be loved that way? You're absolutely right. Oh, God, I'm going to cry again. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's been so lovely to meet you. And I've just Thank absolutely you. loved this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Have I. Oh, my um, pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, you know, let's let's do it again. Yes, that would be lovely. Where can people find you? What's the best way to go and find information about where you're doing things? Yes, well, my website is sallyhepworthauthor.com and uh, that is usually updated with events and things like that. But on a day-to-day level, Instagram at Sally Hepworth, Facebook, which is, I don't know, facebook.com slash Sally Hepworth perhaps. Um, and uh, But look, I mostly hang out at Instagram and, um, yeah, and that's a great way to contact me. Definitely. And like, just like look at your outfit choices because that's my <laughs> other favorite thing. Just like, oh. oh, she's opening another box of cool goodies to look at and try on. And how gorgeous. It's oh, beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Go definitely and grab yourself a copy of The Soulmate because um, it's just, it's brilliant. And all your work. If the, anyone listening hasn't read your stuff yet, because it's absolutely brilliant. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Pleasure. Bye. Okay, bye. You've been listening to a podcast by me, Claire Tonti, and this week with the wonderful Sally Hepworth. And yes, I still have a cold, but we're soldiering on. For more from Sally, you can head to her website, sallyhepworth.com, or go and follow her on Instagram to follow along with all her wonderful exploits with her husband, Christian, and her gorgeous kids, and her wigs, and her beautiful outfits, and all the things. She's just a delight of a human, that one. 
And for more from me, you can head to claretonti.com. You can also head over to Instagram. That's my social media of choice where I like to tell stories. And I have another podcast called Suggestible that comes out every Thursday with my husband, man, James Clement, YouTuber, Mr. Sunday Movies, where we talk all things recommendations for what to watch, read, and listen to. And we swap. So if you have something that your husband likes to watch that you don't like to watch or vice versa, this is the show for you. We often have a little argument and have a bit of a laugh along the way. So that comes out every Thursday. As always, thank you to Raw Collings for editing this week's episode and to Maisie for running our social media. And just a reminder that if you would like to come along to the launch of my album, oh my gosh, that's happening on the 12th of February, three o'clock at the Wesleyan in Melbourne. And for those of you who aren't here in Melbourne, I am going to try and get around the country later in the year, hopefully to tour some of the music, but it will all be available as a digital download after the 12th of Feb and also hopefully as a pre-order on vinyl. So t-shirts and things will also be available online in my online store when that's all set up. But for now, if you are in Melbourne, I would love to see you come along, have a drink, have a laugh and have a listen and maybe a big cry to to, <laughs> to um, the music that I'm creating. So that's it for me. Have a wonderful week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.